So let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. We really do have a lot to cover. So Heavenly Father, we do come before you. Father, we want to behold you in your word. Father, we want to behold your faithfulness and your promises. Father, I pray that as we, we study your faithfulness to Judah, your declarations of your own majesty over the idols of the world, that we would be changed. Lord, that we would let go of anything in our hearts that competes for our affection for you. And Lord, you would reign as our Lord, as our Savior, as our desire, as our refuge, as our rock. And we would trust in you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we talked about chapter 40, and I told you that chapter 40 would get really exciting as God declares who he is, as God declares his majesty over idols. Well, we're going to see more of that this week. And next week, we're going to see the first of the servant songs. And uh, so we're getting into some really exciting parts of Scripture. But I want to take a look. Uh, we have a lot to cover in chapter 42, but let me read you an introduction which says this. In the world, it is called tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. But there is one claim of truth that deserves our all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because at the center of his message is a cross. The cross of God's deconstruction of worldly power. The cross declares that weakness is power and loss is gain and servanthood is greatness. The cross proves that this world does suppress the truth and does oppose what's right. But God himself was willing to take that abuse from us. He suffered unspeakably in order to love us absolutely and to tell us the truth. The dying love of Jesus is the only truth claim that deserves our trust. You may wonder why would I introduce a section on Judah in chapter 41 of the book of Isaiah with that? Because we need to constantly remind ourselves of what we are talking we are going to see the Messiah in our text today. We are going to see God faithfully working out His purposes that culminated in the cross, but the same faithfulness, the same God, the same promises are what we're going to see in the book. In chapter 40, God proclaimed His awesome majesty. He reminds Israel of his covenantal promise 
and tells them to be comforted. If you remember last week in chapter 40, verse 3, where he says, A voice is calling, prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And it goes on and it talks about that passage. And we said, that passage is quoted in where? It's quoted in Matthew. And who is the one crying in the wilderness? John the Baptist. This is a repentant passage. This is pointing to Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 3, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he quotes this passage. So what we're seeing is God is showing us how Messiah is the deliverer of Israel, and he is our deliverer. It is Jesus Christ who is the hero of the book of Isaiah, and it is Jesus Christ who is our hero. He puts his magnificent perfections on display. In, remember in verse 18 of chapter 40, he says, To whom will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? Right? Who is like our God? And in light of all this, he offers Israel rest, and deliverance. We saw that in verses 29 through 31 last week, where he says he gives power to the weary, and to him who lacks vigor, he increases might. Yet youths grow weary and tired, and choice young men stumble badly. But those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power, they will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Right? That's the promise God makes. And he makes Israel understand that their deliverance is not going to come from their own innovation, their own wisdom, their own power. Their deliverance will come from Yahweh and Yahweh alone. We saw that in verses 9 and 10. Therefore, God implores them to trust in Him and Him alone. Verse 27 of chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and the justice due me passes by my God? See, I can get away with this. I can disobey Yahweh, and Yahweh won't see. He will never ultimately bring His justice. If I serve an idol, it's okay. That's what they thought, and God says, No, why would you say that? In light of all I have just told you about my power and glory and wisdom and omniscience. <clears throat> now, in this chapter, in chapter 41, God is going to show Israel that he not only knows the future, but that he orchestrates it. God not only accomplishes all His purpose, but we need to understand this. When God is working out His purposes, is God perfect? Yes or no? Yes. Are we sure? Yes. Are you positive? Yes. So if you go home today and find out your spouse has terminal cancer, is that God's absolute perfect will for your life? It is. 
See, it's, it's not just that it's good. It's perfect. And what we're seeing here, and what I want you to understand as we read about God's deliverance of Judah, it's not good. It's not even very good. It's absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. And perfect, if you remember, means it cannot get better. Right? It's, it's not... 80% good, it is impossible to improve on it. His purposes, his foreknowledge, are absolutely perfect. One commentarian said this, the evidence to which God calls a response is his activity in human history. He does not appeal to a primordial creation epic or some extraterrestrial war among the gods, there are, there are never the arena of revelation for the Hebrew scriptures. Rather, God always chooses to reveal himself in the context of human historical experience. Although one can argue that, just as the Hebrews we're not the only ones to consider that there is one God, so that they were not the only ones who thought God acting in history. What makes them unique is that in all the other cultures, these ideas are merely momentary aberrations in an otherwise untroubled sea of polytheistic deification of the psychosocial, physical cosmos. That was true then. What about it? No, it's still green. But let me know if it goes off. If the green goes away, it is not recording. Green is good. No green is bad. Something. <laughs> But what we're going to see, and that's really important to remember, is the truths we're going to study in relation to Judah are true in relation to you. Israel was God's chosen people to bring the gospel to all the nations. You are God's chosen people. You are God's called out ones. And just as God is going to be faithful to Israel, whom he called, he will be faithful to you. Job 42, verse 2 says this, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Right? That is true. Isaiah 14, 27, we read this earlier. For Yahweh of hosts has counseled, and who can thwart it? For he has stretched out his hand, who can turn it back? That's a rhetorical question, right? It is a rhetorical question. Nobody will stop or thwart or interfere or slow down or in any way affect God in accomplishing his absolutely perfect purposes. And God bases his judgment, or God bases his argument, on his own nature. This is really important. 
God's argument is true because it is completely consistent with who God is. God bases his promises and revelations on his own nature. He is not the God, um, he is the God who is God. We will see how God juxtaposes himself with idols. No one can find comfort or peace in trial if they do not know the God of the universe who is all-powerful. Right? We know that, we believe that, because that is his nature. It's who he is. Later, we're going to read in Isaiah 48, verse 16, Draw near to me, hear this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. So now Lord Yahweh has sent me and his spirit. In 1 Chronicles 17, verse 19, O Yahweh, for the sake of your slave and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to make known all these great things. O Yahweh, there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. There is none like Yahweh. None. And there never will be. So we're going to look at basically um, three different sections here. The first one is we're going to get introduced to Cyrus, God's agent of judgment against Babylon. Now, as we look at this text, I'm going to show you several things that are amazingly, um, are amazing. First of all, Isaiah is already anticipating Israel's captivity in Babylon, although it's a hundred years away. So when he talks about being delivered from Babylon, they're not even in Babylon yet. And then he's going to say, look, God is going to bring you into judgment. God is going to bring you into Babylon, but God is going to deliver you from that. And oh, by the way, I'm going to even give you the name of the guy by whom God will deliver you, right? And you're not even there yet. It's amazing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 41. Coastlands, listen to me in silence. And let the peoples gain new power. Let them come forward. Let them speak. Let us draw near together for judgment. For who has awakened one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He gives up the nations before him. He has dominion over kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in peace. By the way, he had not come with his feet. Who has worked and done it, calling forth the generation from the beginning? Well, what's the answer to that question? I, Yahweh, am the first and the last. I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his neighbor, Be strong. What's their solution? 
So the craftsman strengthens the smelter, and he who smooths metal with a hammer strengthens him who beats the anvil, saying, the, saying of the soldering, it is good, and he strengthens it with nails so that it will not be shaken. He's talking about the making of an idol. What we see here is God is going to start off, and he says, look, you're in captivity in a hundred years, but I am going to, as he says, call one from the east. Well, we'll get to that. Thanks for the questions. So what are the coastlands? First of all, God summons, we see in verse 1, his agent. God is speaking, and he turns his eyes to the Gentile nations, including the distant coastlands on the Mediterranean. And he invites them to bake. God is telling them to be silent and listen. He is about to do something. The judgment in the last line is not condemnation, but decision. Um, one translation, the NIV puts it this way, let us meet together at the place of judgment. That is the court of the law. God is now going into inner judgment with not only Babylon, but the nations, and he's going to do it with somebody he will call from the east. He will energize. This isn't just history working itself out. It is God working out all history. By the way, I, I was just wondering, maybe you guys could help me here. If God was doing this then, and we look around the world today, do we think God might be doing the same thing today? What do you guys think? Yeah, you know, that's what I was thinking too. I'm glad you guys agree with me. This is encouraging because we understand the God of Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 7, is the God of... America 2023 in September and October and November and December. Psalm 46, verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. And Habakkuk, as all the women know, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. Can I paraphrase that? Shut up, man, and listen. That's a paraphrase. It's not exactly a translation. Zechariah 2, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before Yahweh, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Are you getting the idea here? God is not interested in a dialogue with the pagan nations. He says, be silent, and, and I'm going to enter into judgment with you. So God questions the nations in verses 2 and 3. This is really amazing. He will give uh, a series of six descriptions of the one he has chosen to set Israel free from Babylon. He's going to give six different descriptions of this one he has called from the east to deliver his people Israel from their captivity a hundred years before they're in captivity. 
Notice, first of all, God himself will arise, arouse the, serp, the servant. God is doing it. Not history, not circumstance, not geopolitical will. Verse 1 through 3, Thus says Yahweh to Cyrus his anointed, whom I have taken hold of by my right hand to subdue before him and to loose the loins of kings. By the way, this is Isaiah 45. To open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden wealth of secret places, so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. By the way, notice in verse 45, he names the person. Is this amazing? Can you imagine a hundred years ago, a prophet naming the President of the United States a hundred years later? That's exact, it's more than a hundred years. It's not only a hundred years to the captivity, it's after they've been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And God is naming the deliverer. Just out of curiosity, by the way, did he get it correct? There you go. Maybe he's God. Uh, the second thing I want you to note is that God will do a work in his heart. God will arouse him to accomplish his will. This is, by the way, not just God's omniscience. God isn't just looking for it and going, oh, that's what's going to happen. Huh. It's God's sovereignty as he is shaping history. It says that he calls him to his feet. God says to Cyrus, get up. You are now going to accomplish my will. Now, by the way, what does Cyrus think he's doing? Cyrus thinks he's doing his will. Cyrus thinks he is, and we're going to read a little bit about Cyrus here. He thinks he's doing everything just like, oh, by the way, let's say Nebuchadnezzar did, right? Until God sort of whacked Nebuchadnezzar around, let him eat grass for some time, right? And then Nebuchadnezzar finally went, oh, it's God. Yeah, I got it now, right? So let me just give you a little bit of history on Cyrus. You guys all historians, you guys all read up on him? You guys all very familiar with him? I think Cindy is, but Cyrus the Great assumed the throne in about 559 B.C. As an adult, he organized the Persians into an army and revolted against his grandfather and his father, who was Cambries I. He defeated them and claimed the throne for himself. One of his first acts as the king of the Medo-Persian uh, Medo Empire was to launch an attack against Lydia, the capital of Sardis, and the storehouses of the riches they had. Um, and he took them from his king. Then he turned eastward in a campaign that carved out a vast empire from the Aegean Sea to India. In other words, he's going to take most of the known world. The Babylonian Empire was in his path, and by all appearances, it was an insurmountable obstacle to him. 
right? The Babylonians are the most powerful people on the earth. Engaging the Babylonian army, the Opus, he routed their troops and moved on Babylon. The people in the capital welcomed with open arms, seeing him as a liberator. He is best remembered for his policies of peace. His famous decree of, 50, of 539 B.C. set the captives of Babylon free from their harsh rule. Among these prisoners were the Jews taken from Jerusalem in 586. They were allowed to return, and in fact they got a specific decree later, they were allowed to return and rebuild the temple in the city. Um, in addition to that, he gave them all the treasures that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple, he gave them back to the Jews. We read about this in Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh, did you get that? In order to complete the word of Yahweh from the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he had a proclamation to pass throughout his whole kingdom, and he put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed to me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then he goes on to talk about how he will give the Jews the necessary resources and authorities to do this. Cyrus has figured out who is God. Notice, he says, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. It took a while for Nebuchadnezzar to figure it out. Cyrus has figured it out. He will deliver, the third thing we see is he will deliver up all the nations. We see later he will subdue kings. We read that. It says not only will subdue them, he will make them like dust and chaff. That's Bible talk for he's going to wallop them. Right? While he, this isn't going to be a close fight. Daniel chapter 8 verse 4 describes Cyrus like this. I saw a ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before it nor was there anyone to deliver from its power, and he did as he pleased and magnified itself. That's his famous dream where he sees these great nations, and in this, in Daniel 8.4, he's specifically describing the Persian Empire under Cyrus. He pursues the king passing and safely. In other words, he was virtually unopposed from 550 to 530 B.C., they did not mess with him. They simply submitted. This is God's, not predicting, God's controlling, God's sovereignty. It's not that God looks and kind of guesses. God is controlling the future, and he simply tells us. And then I want you to look, God, in verse 4, how God asserts his power. He is the first and the last. He existed before history, and he will exist forever. And then he says this famous phrase, I am he. 
Um, it's very similar. There's two Hebrew words that are similarly represented that we've seen before, I am. And by the way, it is very similar to a messianic message used by Jesus himself as a very explicit testimony to his own deity. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. But Jesus, in Mark 14, verse 46, and Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then later, Jesus makes this statement in Revelation 22. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Once again, we see the Trinitarian nature of what's going on here. Right? A lot of people, and I've said this before, and Kyle has said this, that we look at the Old Testament and that's the book of that wrathful old God but the New Testament, yeah, that's the that's love and that's Jesus, right? We've even got modern, very well-known evangelical pastors, I won't mention their name, but it's Andy Stanley, who say that, 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 that the Old Testament has nothing for the church. Really? What are you reading right now in Isaiah? I, I consider that a blasphemous statement, by the way. And then I want you to notice the response of the nations in verses 5 through 7. Instead of turning to the Lord and his anointed one as Cyrus approaches, what do they do? Hey, let's make an idol. What do you think? I need some help here. I'm going to make a God and he'll deliver me. Okay? Sound like a good plan? They try to, first of all, they falsely encourage one another, and then they turn to their idol for deliverance. G.K. Chesterton makes this really good. I love this. When people stop believing it, pay attention to this, by the way. It's in your notes. When people stop believing in God, they don't, stop belie they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. That's true. When fearful people lose their sense of God, what do they do? They join together to construct their own meaning their own myths, and the artificiality of it all is the world's guilty secret. Moore says all the time, people don't, don't give up God and don't believe in God, they just make their own gods. That's exactly what these people do. If you meet an atheist who says, I don't believe in God, that's a lie. He just believes in another God. And Israel, I'm sorry, what these people are doing, these nations, they're described in Isaiah 44, but the rest of it, he makes a God, his graven image, he falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. He's talking there about a, a, a thing he just made. We'll see this later in a few chapters. How ludicrous is that? Right? How ludicrous is that? 
If you get a disease and you sit down and carve your own God and pray to it and say, hey, heal me for my disease, good luck with that. The second major point is God will deliver Israel from Babylon. But I want you to note God's faithfulness in this. God made a promise to Israel at the beginning. Right? You guys know the song, Who is the Father of Israel? Come on, all you people who have kids. Right? Father Abraham, right? Isn't there a song, a kid's song like that? Yeah, I'm not going to sing it, so rest assured. Right? But Father Abraham, right? He is the father of Israel. God made a promise to Abraham. In fact, we're going to look at it here in a minute. And either God is a liar or God is faithful. And you can guess which of those two I believe. Let me read our passage. I'm going to read verses 8 through 16. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, seed of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have strongly taken hold of from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be anxious um, do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will not find them. Those who war with you, you will, will be as nothing and non-existent. Why? 13. For I am Yahweh your God, who strongly takes hold of your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares Yahweh. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made, it, made a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges, and you will thresh the mountains and pulverize them, and will make the hills like chaff, and you will winnow them, and the wind will carry them away, and the storm will shatter them, but you will rejoice in Yahweh, you will boast in the Holy One of Israel. What an incredible passage. Right, He starts off, I want you to note, giving us the reason why they need not fear. And by the way, notice what it says. You, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom what? I have chosen. By the way, what did Jacob do to make him worthy to be chosen? Nothing. What did Abraham do to make him worthy to be chosen? Nothing. He says, I have chosen seed of Abraham, my friend, whom I have strongly taken hold of from out of the ends of the earth. And then he goes on to say, my servant, I have chosen you. 
Let me just remind you, church, you are his servant whom he has chosen, right? I, I think, have you guys noticed that chance is in the book of Ephesians? Like, have you noticed? Like, we've been there a little while, right? Go back to the book of the beginning of the book of Ephesians. Well, what do we read there? We read that we are God's chosen people. Now, why did God choose you? Why did God choose me? Why did God choose Abraham or Jacob? I don't know. I will tell you, if I were God, I would not have chosen me. I know me well enough to know that I am not worth choosing. But he did. And he has made promises to me. He has made promises to Abraham, and he's made promises to Jacob. And why is God going to deliver them? Because he is faithful. He never forgets his promises. In Genesis 12, God said this to Abraham, And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land, and from your kin, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Is that true? Are you blessed in Abraham? Well, come on, really? How are you blessed in Abraham? Well, who's the seed of Abraham? Christ. Right? Christ. And by the way, God in Genesis 15 is going to reiterate this to Abraham. He says in verse 15, verse 5 of chapter 15, and he brought him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and the number of the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your seed be. Now notice this. Then he believed in Yahweh and he counted him as righteous. Oh, by the way, how was Abraham saved? By faith. Abraham was saved by faith looking forward to the cross. You are saved by faith looking backwards to the cross. And if you don't believe me, look in Romans. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And then he goes in and says, Lord, how will I know? And then he cuts a covenant with Abraham. And we're not going to read it in the interest of time. But when he cuts a covenant, right, two people would, would cut animals and put them in half. And they would walk together between them. And at the end they would say, so it shall be to the one... You will be like that animal if you break this covenant. That was the idea. You'll get cut in half if you break this covenant. But when they get ready to do it, what does God do to Abraham? Yeah, he knocks him out. And who walks between the pieces? God does. God alone. Why does God do that? Because what is the covenant conditional upon? Nothing. The Abrahamic covenant is conditional on God's promise, which is faith and will never fail. 
Okay. Well, let me just bring this into our context. Let me read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. By predestination, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory and grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in him. Do you hear a lot of words in that passage that sound very similar to just what we read in God's promises to Abraham and to Jacob? I do. He chose you. And by the way, when did he choose you according to the passage? According before the foundation of the world. Remember I said God isn't predicting the future. God holds the future. Right? God does everything. Everything that happens, God doesn't go, oh man, I missed that one. God causes everything. I remember at a shepherd's conference, R.C. Sproul said, if there is a single rebellious molecule in the universe, God is not sovereign. Think about that. If there is a single rebellious molecule in the universe, God is not sovereign. Is there a single rebellious molecule in the universe? Nope. And he chose us in him as it says in verse 4, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in him in love. Before him in love. God is working out his sovereign purposes hundreds of years before it happens by delivering Judah from Babylon by Cyrus. And God is working his plan in your life not 150 years, not 200 years, before creation, before there was anything, amazingly enough, God said, when I do creation, I'm going to create art, and I'm going to choose him. And I'm going to do all these things he just listed in Ephesians 1, 3 through 9. We need to understand God never abandons his chosen ones. You understand that? He never, God chose Abraham and never abandoned him because he is his chosen one. It says this in Romans 1 verse, I'm sorry, Romans 11 verse 1. Then I say, has God rejected his people? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how it appeals to God against Israel? And he talks about the fact that Elijah says, hey, there's no one left but me. And God says, nope, I always have a remnant. Always. Right? And he, he's simply saying here, even though right now it appears God has abandoned Jacob, it appears God has abandoned Judah. And if you're sitting there in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, it appears God has abandoned you. You're in captivity in Babylon. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple's no more. God has abandoned you. But what he's telling them here is no, that is not true. And I'm going to bring this man and he's going to deliver you and free and you're going to go back and you're going to rebuild Jerusalem. Now in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed it. It's gone. How many of you went to Israel? Okay. Any of you see the temple there? I didn't, that's not what I said, Gary. <laughs> and you see the temple? It's gone. It was utterly destroyed. But it will return. It will come back. And then he says, Do not fear in the midst of darkness. Their enemies will never triumph over them. We see this in verses 10 through 12. We see that even though they think they try and think that they will win. God will defend his people and their enemies will never win. And by the way, when we think about it, 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 he's not saying for us that we won't suffer. Have Christians ever been martyred? Yeah, I'm thinking by the millions. They're being martyred today. But ultimately they will triumph, right? We see that in the book of Revelation. It says this in Isaiah 60, verse 12, For the nations and the kingdom which will, not, uh, which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will surely be laid waste. It's not true yet, is it? But it will be in the millennial kingdom. In Zechariah 12, it says this, But it will be in that day that I will, make a Jerusalem, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who heave it, oh, heave, up, uh, heave it up will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it, but they will fail. God himself will be their deliverer. God calls Judah a worm, this refers to the contempt of Israel by the, the ungodly nations. By the way, the same term is used of, my, of uh, Messiah at the cross. Right? Just so you know. Um, so in Isaiah, um, well, we'll see. But God uses that word to describe the Messiah. That's what the nations think. Of Messiah, it's what they thought of Judy. He's a worm. But look at verses 13 and 14. It says, For I am Yahweh, your God, who strongly takes hold of your right hand, who says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares Yahweh. And you, Redeemer, is the Holy One of Israel. 
like I said, in, in Psalm 22, which is a prophetic passage about the Messiah, it says this, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. That phrase is a messianic phrase. It is talking about the Messiah, and it uses the same word. The people looked on Judah as worms. They looked on Messiah as a worm. But God says, do not fear. Remember what it says in Psalm 2. I've read this before. Why do the nations rage and the people mediate on a vain, meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and their rulers take counsel against Yahweh and His anointed. By the way, who's Yahweh's anointed? Jesus. And then it says in verse 4, the Lord mocks them. He who sits in heavens laughs. Right? They're all sitting there. They all think they're powerful. They all think they're going to do what they want. And God laughs at them. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, I'm sorry, 12 verse 10 through chapter 13 verse 1. He says this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Now listen to this. So they will look at me whom they have pierced. Who is that they're talking about? Who is the one who is God whom Israel pierced? That's, that's Jesus. And notice what it says. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter, bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadarimim in the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn. Each family alone, the family of the house of David alone, and their wives alone, and the family of the house of Nathan alone, and their wives alone, and the family of the house of Levi alone, and their wives alone, the family of the Shemites alone, and their wives alone, all the families that remain, each family alone, and their wives alone. In that day, a fountain will be opened up for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. What is that talking about? It's talking about the universal regeneration of Israel. We're going to see this in detail when we get to Isaiah 53. But what he's saying here, and we're going to see this passage again, so make a note in your Bible. Highlight it. He is saying, notice the, the words he used. They'll look on the one whom they have pierced. They'll mourn. They'll repent. They will mourn like they lost an only son when they think about Jesus, their Messiah, whom they pierced. And then it goes on to say basically every family, their wives, everybody will repent. That is the universal regeneration of Israel, of that worm Judah. 
God will save them all. He will deliver them. And we're going to see in the, in the kingdom, God will restore Israel's land. Look at verse 17. The afflicted and the needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, Yahweh, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of valleys, I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands fountains of water. I will put cedar in the wilderness, archaea and myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and know and establish and gain insight as well that the hand of Yahweh has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. In the millennial kingdom, Gary, yes. you, I think you mentioned you were in Israel. Yes, Is all the land there lush forests? Yeah, how many people have ever been to the Middle East? There you go. I would not describe it by lush forests and fountains and streams. I would mostly describe it as endless desert and dust. We used, to, we used to joke about what we referred to as ubiquitous Saudi dust. It's just dust. It's just sand and desert. It's bleak. But one day, it is going to be the most lush, fruitful, watered place and I want you to notice it says, the hand of Yahweh has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. When will that, is that true now? No. When will that be true? When King Jesus reigns. King Jesus. Yahweh is, has done this? That's a reference to Messiah will do that. When Jesus ascends on the throne... By the way, if you read the book of Revelation and you look at all the things, the earth is uninhabitable. If Jesus doesn't come back, everybody will die because the waters are no longer drinkable. The oceans, all the fish have died. Right, The land has been destroyed. All the green plants are gone. It's all gone. It's all destroyed. There is no drinkable water. How long can you go like that? A couple of days. And everything dies. But, instead, King Jesus comes, and you just read what he's going to do. He's going to create lush forests. He's going to recreate, in essence, Eden on all of the earth. He will restore the water, just as he provided water in Egypt. And in Babylon, he will provide for them in the midst of their greatest trials. In Isaiah 48, verse 20, it says this, Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, cause this to be heard, bring it forth from the end of the earth, say, Yahweh has redeemed my servant Jacob, and they did not thirst when he led them through the waste places he made the water flow out of the rock for them. 
He split the rock and the water gushed out. God will do that. And he will need to do that. Let me just read you in Revelation 16, verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and on the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard an angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who is and who was, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. All the water is gone, but one day he will recreate it all. And it says he will do it. Not the climate change advocates. Okay? And if you want to see some serious climate change, read the book of Revelation. You'll see some serious climate change. We need to understand God will restore all the land. He will do it. Romans 8, starting in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation also will be set free from its slavery corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day, the cursed earth, that's all brown now, look at our grass out there, it's cursed. It's all brown, right? One day it will all be recreated. And the whole world will know God did it. Look at verse 20 there. That they may see and know and establish and gain insight as well that the hand of Yahweh has done this, the Holy One of Israel. Right? Psalm 109, verse 27. Let them know that it is your hand, you, O Yahweh, have done it. Right? You have done it. Now I'm going to close briefly. I want to look at, at the futility of idols. Now this is, we're going to see passages like this in chapter 44. We're going to see this again. But don't sit here in our arrogance and think, oh, that applies to those stupid people who carved idols when you look around and you make your own idols. I will tell you, at one point in my life, flying became an idol to me. I loved it. It became an idol, and I had to go before God and confess it, and then God took it away from me, and I never flew again. I thank God for that, by the way. Look at verses 21 through 29. We're going to go through this pretty quickly. Bring near your case, Yahweh says. Yahweh says, okay, you want to have an idol? Let's discuss it. I want to hear your case. Right? Yahweh says, Bring forward your mighty arguments. The king of Jacob says, Let them bring it forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare that they may uh, declare what they were, that we may establish your heart on them and know their outcome, or cause us to hear what is coming. Declare the things that are to come afterward, that we may know you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, 
You are nothing, and your work is non-existent. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have awakened one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun. Um, he will call on my name, and he will come upon officials as upon, as upon mortar, even as a potter treads clay. He was declared this from the beginning that we might know, or from the former times that he might say he is right. Surely there was no one who declared. Surely there was no one who caused these words to be heard. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Formerly I said to Zion, Behold, here they are, and to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. But I look, and there is no one. There is no counselor among them. Who, I ask, can respond with a word? Behold, all of them are false. Their works are non-existent. Their molten images are wind and utterly formless. God starts off and he says, Okay, you want an idol? Let's talk. He says, uh, bring your case. Bring forward your mighty arguments. All right, you want an idol? Bring forth some mighty arguments. Let me give you mine. And he says, bring forth and declare to me what's going to take place. Right? The only God holds the future. Isaiah 46, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which not have been, saying, my counsel will be established and I will, counsel all, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He goes to him and he says, okay, idols, tell me the path, tell me the future. You know. What's the answer of the idols? They just sit there. Maybe some termites eat the wood. That's about it. And he makes this argument. He says, declare what is to come afterwards. And then notice he goes, they're worthless. Verses 24 and 25. Notice the wording. They are nothing, of no account. They don't do anything. Isaiah 44. Those who form a graven image who are of them, of, I'm sorry, for those who form a graven image are all of them futile, and their desirable things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Psalm 115 talks about the same thing. They don't have eyes. They don't speak. They're not predicting the future. They don't know. They're pieces of wood. And notice what it says about them. Don't miss this. Those who serve them are an abomination. In verse 8 it says, Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. That came from Psalm, uh, Psalm 115. Those who make them will become like them. See, we make idols in our own image. We make idols that are like us and want what we want and will give us what we want. That's our idol. And God says, okay, 
they do nothing, and if you make them, you become an abomination. Right? Don't think you can cherish your idols and get away with it. And notice it talks about, God says, hey, I can predict the future. You want to see? Would you like a demonstration? Okay. He says in verse 25 that he is calling one from the north. Now here's the detail of this prophecy. With relation to Israel, where is Persia? It's to the east. Persia's to the So what's this coming from the north? Well, when Cyprus comes down and invade Babylon, guess which direction history tells us he came from? The north. He comes around and he invades Babylon from the north. Isn't it amazing? God doesn't only just know who he is calling. He has made the strategy for Cyrus. Right? He's built the war plan. Cyrus, you're going to attack from the north. And he does. And again, you can read Ezra 1 through 4. I won't read it again. I already read it. How, in fact, God delivers them. And then I want you to notice how all idols prove false in verses 26 through 29. No idol has ever known what God will do. That's what he says. They don't know. Have you ever met one that does? Look at all these people who think they're geniuses today. All these people who declare what we need to do. All these elites. All these people who say, oh, biblical truth, we don't need that, right? Well, let's see if they know what God will do. And I want you to notice, God gave them true prophets who spoke the truth. But God finds none like him. None of these idols are like him. None of them can do what he does. None of them will do what he will do. And by the way, we're going to see this again. And here's why I love this stuff so much. Because God is boldly declaring his superiority over all the things that you look around in the world that bring us fear. Right? Look around at all those things that make us sweat. What about the economy? What about the election? What about this? What about that? Right? Exactly. Thank you. Right? And God says, I am God. And is he? You think God knows what's going to happen in the 24 election? Think God knows what's going to happen with our economy? Right? We have a financial advisor in our group. He's not exactly sure what's going to happen, but God is, right? But Kyle's got a good guess. Okay, let's talk briefly about some implications, and then we'll quit. First of all, God will never abandon you. We read where God tells his chosen people, Judah and Abraham and Jacob, these are my promises. And then we read later in Isaiah where God says, I will never abandon you. Again, they are going through some judgment, but in the end, God will fulfill every promise he made to Abraham and to David and to Jacob. And he will, he will fulfill the new covenant promise he made in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. 
he will fulfill them all. Well, has God made any promises to you, chosen people? Let me just read one. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Right? We just read God saying all this stuff. Right? So when he goes, hey, who is for us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? What's the answer to that question? Nobody. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Verse 35, so, I added so. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction, or turmoil, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 38, you all know it, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is meaningless dribble unless God is who he says he is. And we have just read in Isaiah that's exactly who he is. So when God says this, is this true? Will he ever abandon you? doesn't say you won't experience um, affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword. doesn't say you won't experience those, but it says in all those you will overwhelmingly conquer, and in the end... Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. And he is able to do that. You just read that in Isaiah. And faith in anything but God is absolutely worthless. Right? I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't whatever. But I look around and my hope isn't anything going on in the world. My hope is in God and in the church and that's it. <laughs> Micah 5, verse 4. And he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. See, I'm not going to worry because Yahweh will be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ will be great and will rule Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Is that true? Who assures that? Yahweh does. Christ does, who is, oh, by the way, as we read, is he more powerful than anything else? I think so. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful. Let me just close with this. We all think about this with the Great Commission, and it's part of that. So I don't, I'm not disputing that, but I want you to pay attention to the end of it. Matthew 20, verse 28, verse 20. Teaching them to keep all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the edge of the age. Who's I? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is with you, and he is in you, and will be till the end of the age. What do you fear? You might be persecuted, you might experience toil, you might experience hardship, you might experience, oh, by the way, death. And by the way, I'm thinking everybody in this room is going to experience that, unless the rapture comes, which I'm, by the way, hoping for. But the point is simply this. Do not walk out of here in fear because your God is awesome. And by the way, next week we're going to look at the servant psalm. And even though Ka wants to teach it, he's not because he gets all the good passages. It's the first of four servant songs, and it will blow you away. We're going to see Jesus Christ in all his glory proclaimed by Isaiah the prophet. Right? So come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you. We do adore you. Jesus, you are our Lord. You are our master. You are our king. And we go to worship you, Jesus. We go to proclaim your excellencies. We go to worship you by hearing your word and submitting to it and bowing down before it as you proclaim your truth to us because you are God. Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you even more. We pray in his name. Amen.